Listener Production. When the near our house dropped the bombs, it was so near that uh, it was really scary. So we uh, picked up our things and uh, next day we left Kiev. When it started to drop bombs, we uh, left in one day. That was Ukrainian citizen Tatiana Sidorishina. Now, she's one of more than 11 million people who, according to the United Nations, have fled their homes in Ukraine since Russia invaded the country in late February. The majority, approximately 7 million people, have fled to other parts of Ukraine, while a further 5 million people have fled to other neighbouring countries such as Poland and Romania. Tatiana initially fled to Poland on a train before boarding a flight to Australia. Yeah, and she's not the only one that's come here from Ukraine. In fact, around 6,000 Ukrainians have been granted humanitarian visas in Australia, and that will allow them to work and study but only for up to three years. So as you're about to hear, the future is still very, very uncertain. It's traumatic. You've dropped everything. You've come here. You don't know what your future is. In Australia, at least, they have three years of safety, security, and they can then decide what they're going to do with their lives. That journey out of Kiev coming up in just a second. But first, the headlines for today, Friday the 22nd of April, with Jan and Annika. It was bound to happen and it has. Labor leader Anthony Albanese has tested positive for COVID-19. We've been planning for this kind of scenario for a long time. It was always something that might happen. It could happen to either side. Yeah, that is Labor Senator Murray Watt on the ABC there. You have to plan for this stuff because COVID, as much as we'd love to think it has, it has not gone away. And Albanese uh, confirmed the result on social media last night. Um, He said that he had taken a routine PCR test ahead of a trip to WA. And what do you know? Came up positive. Scott Morrison has tweeted his wishes to Anthony Albanese that he recovers quickly. He said everyone's experience with COVID is different and he hopes he doesn't experience any serious symptoms. Albanese said he's feeling fine so far and will isolate at home in Sydney for the next seven days. I can't imagine that anyone in the Labor camp is very happy with this <laughs> because it means that Albanese is going to lose a week of face-to-face campaigning just a few weeks out from... An election. I was in Canberra recently and I said to someone in his office, surely you want him to get it beforehand. Send him to a COVID party, some sort of super spreader <laughs> event. This is bad. <laughs> but as you say, they've got to be prepared for this. Um, he hadn't had it and that was always a risk. We know Scott Morrison's had it semi-recently. So even though they saw each other this week at that debate, Scott Morrison is not considered a close contact so he can continue to campaign. It will, I guess, make us realise how important travelling around and campaigns are. It's something our leaders have always done during the election. But in this day of Zoom, maybe we don't need to. Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden won the US election while mostly campaigning from home. So, you know, it it is possible to still have a presence out there with the people while technically not being out there yourself in person. But I guess the other question is, how many other Labor politicians has Albo been in close contact with? And God, I wonder if they're rushing to get tested now and if we'll hear that others have got it in the next 24 to 48 hours. The election campaign continues to roll on, though, and the Prime Minister has issued an apology after he made a comment to a woman with an autistic son whose NDIS care package had been cut. Jenny and I have been blessed. We've got two children that don't 
haven't had to go through that. Yeah, so that comment there about being blessed um, for not having an autistic child or having to go through that process was made on Wednesday night. It was made during the debate between Scott Morrison and Anthony Albanese, the sort of town hall style debate. Scott Morrison copped a lot of criticism for that um, and here is what he had to say in regards to that criticism. I can appreciate, particularly with some of the ways it was um, communicated and the way it was uh, uh, sought to be represented uh, by our political opponents in the middle of an election, um, that it could have been taken in a different context. And I'm deeply sorry about that. Australian of the Year and wheelchair tennis star Dylan Alcott was among those unimpressed with the Prime Minister's remark. He tweeted, woke up this morning feeling very blessed to be disabled. I reckon my parents are pretty happy about it too. Yeah, he said that um, feeling sorry for disabled people and their families is not helping at all, but rather being treated equally is what disabled people want in this country and what disability advocates have been calling for. And over to the US, where US President Joe Biden has announced a major new military support package for Ukraine. I'm announcing another $800 million to further augment Ukraine's ability to fight in the east and the Donbass region. There's a pretty uh, intense conflict going on in the Donbass region at the moment, and this package is set to include heavy artillery weapons including something called howitzers, which are long-range weapons, as well as 144,000 rounds of ammunition and tactical drones as well. In addition to that, Biden also announced that the US is going to be accepting 100,000 Ukrainian refugees. The new US arms delivery brings Washington's total military support since the start of the war to more than $3 billion US dollars. On the war front, Russian President Vladimir Putin has claimed victory over the port city of Mariupol, but has ordered his forces not to storm the last remaining Ukrainian stronghold. I consider the proposed storming of the industrial zone unnecessary. I order you to cancel it. Yeah, so apparently Putin has called for Russian troops to blockade the steelworks plant. This is, this is a, a plant where Ukrainian troops are continuing to hold out. He's called for Russian troops to blockade it so that, quote, unquote, a fly can't get through. It's, it's not looking good for those people held out in the steelworks plant. Meanwhile, though, in a slightly, I suppose, adjacent story, um, world number one, Novak Djokovic, I should say, we're talking about tennis now in a, in a very weird segue, but the world number one, Novak Djokovic, he's weighed into Wimbledon's decision um, to ban Russian and Belarusian players. Here's what he said. I think it's crazy. Yeah, he also talked about being a child of war himself. Of course, he comes uh, from Serbia. There was a, a horrible conflict um, there in the 90s. And he said that he knows how much emotional trauma it can leave and that athletes had nothing to do with the war in Ukraine. New South Wales flood victims are still waiting on recovery grants from the government. It's been revealed nine out of ten of the grants are yet to be paid. Less than 10% have actually been paid. Mm. Why has it been so slow? These programs have been jointly funded between the state and Commonwealth. The guidelines that are in place, I believe, lack flexibility at a Commonwealth government level. I've raised that with the Prime Minister. Yeah, I'm sure those in flood-affected areas, this is the last thing that they need to hear, finger-pointing between the state and federal governments. But that was New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet there speaking at a budget estimates hearing. According to the latest data, around 13,000 applications have been submitted by small businesses. This is in flood-affected areas. 
for grants of up to $50,000. However, out of those 13,000 applications, only 1,200 have been paid out and there's more than 8,000 that are still currently being assessed. A Commonwealth spokesperson has said it was agreed to make it easier for small businesses to access the business grants. Rental support payments have also been delayed. Only 1,000 applications out of 7,000 have been approved. 4,500 have been deemed ineligible. Yeah, there's also another 2,000 that are still yet to be processed. Now, these floods started on the 22nd of February They've really wreaked havoc, um, particularly in parts of southern Queensland and, and northern New South Wales. And unfortunately, it's been months now. So we wish the residents the best. And in Britain, Prime Minister Boris Johnson will face an inquiry into claims he misled MPs over Partygate. The motion I've tabled seeks to defend the simple principle that honesty, integrity and telling the truth matter in our politics. So that was opposition leader Keir Starmer there um, introducing the motion. There was more than five hours of debate that followed, but MPs moved the motion unopposed. If the inquiry finds that Boris Johnson misled Parliament, he would be expected to resign, but uh, it won't start its sort of substantive investigative work until the Met Police inquiry into the party finishes. So that's also going on at the same time as well. Last week, the Prime Minister, along with his wife and the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, were fined for breaking COVID laws by attending an event in Downing Street to celebrate his birthday. Johnson had previously told MPs laws were not broken, leading to the current accusations that the Prime Minister misled Parliament. Yeah, there has been at least 50 fines that have been issued as part of the Met's investigation into this. The background is that there were a number of parties held in Downing Street over the course of 2020 and 2021. And this was when COVID restrictions were in place, including in some cases when gatherings of more than two people inside were banned by law. So for politicians to be doing it in Downing Street over and over again, not only is it not a good look, it looks like a, a flouting of the law. And Boris Johnson may very well be the first sitting prime minister in British history to have been found to have broken the law. It's incredible, isn't it, Jan? This is somebody that went out and told people of Britain to stay in their homes and gave those orders and then went and broke them himself. All right, up next, the escape from Ukraine. What it's like to leave everything you know and love. We're going to meet a Ukrainian woman who fled from Kiev to Melbourne. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has created a massive refugee crisis. More than 5 million Ukrainians have fled their country since the conflict began. Yeah, Tatiana Sidorishina, who you heard from at the top of the show, and her 11-year-old son are just two of them. Now, they found safety in Melbourne, having fled their home in Kiev, but they remain in limbo. Can you tell us a bit about what it was like to leave Kiev? Uh, it was uh, not very easy to leave uh, Kiev uh, because uh, we have only one uh, train, like train to Zolviv. Uh, so took everybody from Kiev and uh, to Zolviv. Then we come to Lviv and uh, there was a bus from Lviv to Poland. And then uh, we took a flight, um, took tickets uh, to Australia. In the weeks leading up to war breaking out, there was a lot of talk that this was going to happen, but it appears that not everybody in Ukraine thought the Russians would invade. 
Did it come as a surprise to you? And when did you decide to leave? It was a big surprise for me because I didn't believe it, that nobody believed in this. I have relatives in Russia. My mother's sister live, and uh, we have uh, many relatives in Russia, and nobody believed. And it was like, um, what what's going on? Uh, which bombs? Uh, which uh, rockets? Uh, what is this? And uh, um, many people in uh, in Ukraine and in other cities uh, did, uh, didn't believe in this and stay in uh, their cities. Uh, because nobody uh, thought that it will be uh, for some months uh, uh, going like this. So we stay and believe tomorrow will be okay. Tomorrow will be okay. And uh, it, um, it's something terrible. I didn't believe about this because I thought and uh, um, all Ukrainians thought that uh, Russia, it's like brothers. Yeah. Um, so it's like we have the same language and uh, maybe the same culture. It was surprise, but not good surprise for us. Yeah. What was it like for you to actually have to leave your home and your life, your work and your family? And what was it like leaving with your son as well? I love my country very much. I love Ukraine. I love Kiev. And of course, I, I have uh, work. My, hand, my son has good school and relatives, friends. And uh, it's like um, to start from the start. I still don't believe. I very hope that everything will be okay and uh, we, will, we will return. But for today, it's not possible. And I think not possible for a year, maybe maybe two, because everything uh, near Kyiv and uh, very many houses in Kyiv are destroyed. For example, my work, I have no work. <laughs> my son, uh, he has no school because the school, his school destroyed too. No money, no work, nothing, nothing. Did you have a plan about how to get out? And how many of your friends and family did escape as opposed to trying to stay? My mom stays in Ukraine because she said, Tanya, I don't, I don't know language and this is my home. I will be, yeah, I will be in my home and uh, it will be better for me. I want to say that almost uh, all uh, the people who young and uh, who know a language, uh, they all uh, left Ukraine. So it's uh, like some people who are more than 50 years, yeah, 60 years, uh, who are pensioners, uh, almost of them stay in in uh, Ukraine. But uh, young people, they left Ukraine. Almost my friends, uh, they left Kyiv maybe in, on the second day or third day and uh, they went uh, to all, uh, you know, many, many come to Europe. Many people go uh, went to Europe. But we decided to go to Australia because uh, my I come here with my relatives and uh, they have friends in Australia so they helped us with uh, all these applications and other things. If to be honest, I didn't mind that Australia will create it so will create it our Ukrainian people so good. If to be honest, I didn't believe in this. Did you say you you wouldn't believe Australia would treat the Ukrainian people so good? 
oh, yes, I always uh, thought that Australia is uh, like a closed country, but uh, I thought that it's it not true. So uh, our Ukrainian people are greeted uh, all uh, for us. Uh, the government gave the apartment and uh, food and uh, help uh, and very good diaspora. So it's like amazing, if to be honest, because all my uh, friends from Europe say another thing about European cities. Uh, but uh, in Australia, it's, uh, it's fantastic, <laughs> fantastic inviting of our people. Well, that's wonderful that you've had such a great experience, um, you know, coming here and, and you feel that you've been welcomed here in Australia. Leaving your home with your 11-year-old son, how did you explain to him what was happening, what the future is going to look like? Uh, my son uh, didn't want to leave Kiev, of course, and uh, we sat in our flat and bomb shelter almost 10 days. And I said to him, uh, it's uh, very dangerous to stay in Ukraine, in Kiev. He said, oh no, please, uh, I don't want to leave Kiev. But uh, when the, near our house dropped the bombs, it was so near that uh, it was really scary. So we uh, picked up our things and uh, next day we left Kiev. I tried to, to, uh, to say to him that it's dangerous, but we stay in Kiev. But when it started to drop bombs, we uh, left in one day. Tatiana, you're now in Australia with your son. What does the future look like for you? I would like to stay in Australia. And uh, at first, my son, of course, say, Mom, I want to give, I want to home, I want to see my cat, please. And But now he said, oh, if uh, I will stay, I, I like this country very much. I can say that Melbourne, we now live in Melbourne, it's something like Kiev. So I, I feel in, uh, in the peace and uh, I like the city. And if I will need it uh, by my work yeah, in this country to help for Australian people, I will stay here for a time if it will be possible for me. That was Tatiana Sidorishina talking there about what it was like for her fleeing Ukraine and coming to Australia. Let's go to Stefan Romanu. He's the chair of the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations and he's been assisting families fleeing Ukraine and settling in Australia, such as Tatiana. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us how many more people there are like Tatiana and her son here in Australia that are sort of living in a bit of a state of limbo at the moment? Well, we have um, through the um, the federal government's visa program um, and the purpose of the exercise was to get people here out of the danger zone very quickly. We know that there are about 6,700 visas issued. There's probably 2,500 people who have arrived in Australia Many of those have come to their families and others, obviously, who have no connection here. The community has tried to connect them with uh, the relevant government agencies. And you've got millions of people crossing the border in Europe and, and seeking refuge somewhere else. How do people even, you know, who have no connection with Australia, who don't have family here, even consider getting on a plane and making their way all the way to Australia? What sort of support is on the ground to help people make this passage? I was in Poland and Ukraine a couple of weeks ago. I was at the centres where the displaced people are. Many of those people who come to Australia have got a connection. A lot of the people who are in those um, places where 
you know, if you can imagine a, an Ikea or a Bunnings or a, a DFO building where you've got 1,500 stretches, uh, people from all over Ukraine coming, crossing the borders, people tend to find a connection somewhere close to their home. Uh, a lot of the people are finding places in Europe because many of those want to come back. And uh, it's an interesting fact that until recently, until the last couple of days where the shellings uh, started again, um, we had information from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs that more people were returning to Ukraine than crossing the border. So the connection here is a lot of people know about Australia. Obviously, we have a, a website. There's also the Australian Embassy, which is was in Kiev, which has now been moved over to Poland. So people, you know, they're very entrepreneurial. They, they find their way. But I say here, most people are connected somehow to their families. Because you're in touch with a lot of people that have left um, Ukraine to come to Australia. What are you hearing from them? What has that process been like for them from leaving their home to getting on that plane to arriving to settling in various cities around the country? Yeah. The stories are quite horrific. If, if you're on the border, and I, I was on the border, and we met, for example, people who were from a village that was uh, you know 20 kilometres away from the Polish border. We um, met them. We were the first ones to meet them when they crossed. Um, imagine going to bed at night with your children, getting woken during the night, pick up what you can, and get on a bus, uh, escape, flee, cross a border, not knowing where you're going. From uh, a point of view of uh, settling here, We've tried through the Australian Federation of Ukrainian Organisations, and we're fairly highly organised. We set up working groups through all our states and territories to make sure that when people did arrive, uh, we were able to somehow deal with with the issue. And what were the issues? Um, we didn't know, for example, in, in many cases, we didn't know as, as an association that um, when people would be arriving. There were times where, for example, government agencies would ring and say, look, we've got people on the, at the airport here uh, and we had to arrange for them to be picked up through, through many of the government agencies. In terms of settling here, We've had a very good relationship with the federal government in terms of how we deal with those issues. And you'll be aware that um, people came as a tourist on a tourist visa because that was the quickest way out of the country to get to Australia. Uh, once they've settled here, they'll transfer to a, a 476 visa. Uh, in the interim, it'll be a 449, which will be a couple of weeks just to verify bona fides. And then when they get onto the 476, they'll have all the, the services, um, whether it be Medicare, whether it be Centrelink, English language classes and so on. But from a community point of view, it's very, very important for us to connect with those because people have gone through trauma. People want to be connected with their own. Therefore, uh, throughout Australia, our associations are holding meet and greets, uh, holding different events to make sure people feel very, very integrated into the community here. But, you know, it's traumatic. You've dropped everything. You've come here. You don't know what your future is. In Australia, at least, they have three years of safety, security, and they can then decide what they're going to do with their lives. Keep in mind, people have uh, husbands, fathers, brothers fighting. The general consensus of people on the border has been, you know, when we met with people that they want to go back because that's where their life is. Now, people have now come to Australia, they're displaced, they have three years to make a call. Obviously, some people will want to stay here. And that means that eventually, you know, they'll have to sort out, you know, whether they're going to be a skilled migrant visa or, or what other visa options are here. And those that do stay, um, for us, it's pretty important to make sure they're integrated because they'll help build a community here in Australia. That was Stefan Romanu. He's the chair of the Australian Federation 
of Ukrainian organisations. And it sounds like they're doing everything they can in this moment to try and get as many people out of Ukraine as possible and then really just seeing what comes from those temporary visa situations. That is our Monday to Friday show wrapped for the week. Of course, there's always the weekend briefing with Jam. Who have you got, Jam? Oh, where to start with the weekend briefing? It's a goodie, guys. This is a good episode. I spoke to Chrissy Swan, who, of course, you would know from about a million different gigs. Of course, she is on Breakfast Radio in Melbourne. She's currently co-hosting The Project on Channel 10. You might know her from Big Brother Days. You might know her from The Great Australian Spelling Bee. You might know her from Celebrity MasterChef. I could keep going. I could list dozens of shows on radio and TV. She's funny, she's warm, and she is generous, but in this conversation, you get a different side of Chrissy Swan. You get a really candid discussion of how she lives her life in the spotlight of the media and how unpleasant that is and how scary that is sometimes. It is a really disturbing picture that she paints of what life is like for a well-known Australian who the paparazzi like to hunt down every single day. Wow, sounds like an interesting conversation. If Jam's into it this much, I bet it'll be great. Tune in tomorrow for the weekend briefing. And of course, Monday to Friday for the weekly briefing. We'll catch you next week. Bye. Listener.